This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'll be the host of this episode of the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking with Professor Jennifer Dixon about her book, Dark Pasts, Changing the State's Story in Turkey and Japan, which was released from Cornell University Press in 2018. Uh, In this book, Dr. Dixon investigates the Japanese and Turkish states' narratives of their own dark pasts, namely the Nanjing Massacre and the Armenian Genocide. The official versions of histories initially uh, put out there by both states was similar in adherence to a strategy of silencing critics or relativizing or denying the massacres, uh, or in the case of Armenia, the genocide. Uh, But Dixon shows how the two governments' narratives of their dark pasts have diverged. The book draws on a combination of extensive fieldwork and archival research to present a holistic picture not just of the narratives themselves, but of the domestic and international factors influencing when and how those historical myths about these large-scale atrocities have changed over time. Dark Pasts argues that while international pressures exerted on state actors like Turkey and Japan can and have produced change in the official versions of events, domestic factors are also crucial for shaping the content of these new versions of history. Dixon's work should be of interest to audiences not just in East Asian or Middle Eastern studies or political science, but also to those with particular concerns with historical memory. So Dr. Dixon, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your book. Um, I'd like to just start off with the big question, right? Which is what are dark pasts and why study them? So first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be able to do a podcast interview with the New Books in East Asia series. So that's a great first question. So in my book, the title of the book is obviously Dark Pasts. And I define a dark past as a large scale or systematic human rights atrocity that occurred in the past and for which the state in question bears some responsibility, either directly or as a successor to the regime that perpetrated the crimes. So large-scale or systematic human rights atrocities that would fall into this category include, but they're not limited to, genocide, mass killing, ethnic cleansing, colonialism, and slavery. So for the two cases that I study and analyze in my book, um, Turkey's narrative of the Armenian genocide, so that large-scale atrocity is categorized as a genocide, um, whereas the Nanjing massacre is categorized as a mass killing. Um, One thing I would want to emphasize is that um, Turkey and Japan are by no means um, in a small category of states with dark pasts. Um, Rather, many, many states have dark pasts, uh, including the United States, if we can think most prominently about um, the dark past of slavery uh, and then the um, structural racism and discrimination that followed, um, and also the genocide, ethnic cleansing, and mass killing of Native Americans. Thank you. Yeah. And so how did you get interested in uh, studying this particular subject? So I uh, started out in grad school studying Turkish politics, and um, I was always rather interested in human rights issues, and this was one of the human rights issues that I was particularly interested in Turkey. And I would say I ended up picking this topic because I have a particular interest in stories and narratives and myths and silences and the traces that such stories and myths uh, leave in the present. Um, so I'm interested both on an individual level and then also in my book, obviously, I, I look at this on a, on a macro or state level. Um, so that, that kind of 
was the genesis of my interest. And then, um, you know, as a political scientist, my, my fields are comparative politics and international relations. And so I wanted to do a comparative analysis. So not just look at Turkey and its narrative of the Armenian genocide, but rather to look at it in comparison with another state's narrative. And so I spent some time trying to figure out what would make sense as a good comparison. And I ended up choosing uh, Japan um, for a variety of analytical reasons. Okay. And, and how did you originally become interested in Turkish politics? Um, it's rather idiosyncratic. Um, my mom used to do business in Turkey. And so um, I went to Turkey with her several times and I um, thought it would be fun to start studying Turkish afterward. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then, and then what was it about uh, Japan that made you feel that it would be a uh, good um, comparative for the Turkish situation? Well, so there are several factors that I think make it a good comparison. So one is that uh, both states' narratives have been rather sticky, uh, to use a, a particular word. So they've, they've both been rather resistant to change, and they've both been highly contested over time, both within um, the states, although to different degrees, and also internationally, although again to different degrees. Um, so the, the question that I ask in my book is, when and why do states change their narratives of dark pasts? So I was, I was first and foremost interested in cases where there was a lot of contestation and where that contestation was both within the domestic sphere and also on the, on the international level, because I was interested in assessing um, the relative influence of these two different um, contestation at these two different levels. And then also I was interested in um, assessing the interaction between these two different spheres, et cetera. Um, so, so on the broadest level, um, both cases kind of met this a uh, basic set of criteria of, of factors that needed to be present in the cases. Um, then from an analytical perspective, what's quite interesting about the two cases is that both states' narratives start from um, a baseline point um, that's quite similar. So they both start from a baseline point of, of, of silencing, um, and in the Turkish case, really active denial. Um, or silencing, I would say, is, is, is kind of the dominant position of both narratives at, at the beginning of the period of my analysis, which is in the post immediate post-World War II period. Um, and yet, over time, the two narratives uh, diverge rather markedly. So while both are resistant to change, um, they both do change. Um, and yet Japan's narrative changes to a much greater extent than Turkey's narrative does. Um, so this allows me to both analyze changes over time within each state's narrative, but then also to analyze um, what factors uh, differ in the two cases that might help explain the divergence in the trajectories of the two narratives over time. Okay, great. Yeah, and that really sets us up to thinking about um, the, the 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 chapters themselves. Um, so your overall, your sort of top line analysis is about the domestic uh, versus uh, international factors that change these narratives. Um, you lay out a conceptual framework for understanding all this in chapter one, which is changing the state's story. And could you explain your conceptual framework for us and especially how it might differ from ways that other scholars have approached similar subjects? Sure. So because I am st was studying states' narratives in my book, I needed, and I particularly was interested in uh, accounting, understanding, identif well, identifying, understanding, and then explaining uh, changes and continuities over time in these narratives. I needed to come up with a way uh, to be able to identify the content of the narratives, and then more importantly, to be able to identify uh, continuities and changes, right? So if I, if I wanted to be able to explain change, I needed to actually be able to first identify when, when a change had happened. Um, and I was also interested in studying uh, official narratives um, in their whole. So not just in studying, say, 
um, what what is said in textbooks or not just in um, official statements and the question of is there an apology or not, but rather I wanted to wanted to bundle together a bunch of different possible indicators for a state's narrative to come up with um, to be able to talk about the overall narrative kind of in its gestalt. Uh, so to do to to both identify change and continuity and to look at the composite, I needed to come up with a conceptual framework. So I spent a lot of time thinking about how to do this and and kind of working and reworking my framework. And so what I ended up coming up with is um, a conceptual framework that includes eight possible elements of a state's narrative. Um, and these eight possible elements can um, one or more of them can at any point in time. Uh, be part of the state's narrative. Um, And so five of the elements are descriptive and they range from um, denying or silencing the event all the way to uh, admitting responsibility for the event. The other three elements of um, that I include in my conceptual framework are reparative. Um, So they include apologizing, offering compensation, and commemorating. Um, and so using this, um, th- these eight elements, uh, I define continuity as um, a period of time in which uh, none, there's no change in the elements that constitute the official narrative. So um, at a given point in time, um, say in both Turkey's narrative and in Japan's narrative, um, the narrative constituted, so in Turkey's narrative initially it constituted denying and silencing. And that persisted for about three decades um, at the beginning of my analysis. Japan's narrative started um, with denying and silencing um, and myth-making. Um, and that persisted for about two decades at the beginning of my analysis. So change then, uh, per my framework, is... Uh, when one or more element is either added or subtracted from um, from the official narrative. So that would be if, for instance, change would happen when um, a narrative uh, begins to, the elements of the narrative begin to acknowledge um, the event in question rather than just say, myth maker, relativize or deny or silence. Um, that would then constitute change in my framework. Um, I guess I should take a step back and say kind of what, what are the, what are the, what are the texts or the media that I look at in order to, um, identify or, uh, identify these different elements. So I look at, um, five main, um, indicators as kind of the parlance I use in the book. Uh, so one is official statements. Another is, uh, official state textbooks. Uh, and in, so obviously not all countries' textbooks constitute or represent the state's position on an issue, but in both Turkey and Japan, um, textbooks are, um, curricula are written by the uh, respective national ministries of education and um, text, individual textbooks are approved um, by um, by the national government. So textbooks in both Turkey and Japan can be taken to represent the state's position on these issues or what's said in textbooks, I should say. So I also look at um, accounts in official publications and um, reparations and other payments to victim states, groups, or individual victims. Um, so across, uh, when I assessed uh, the content of the state's narrative, I did so um, by considering uh, how the event, whether and how the event in question was represented across these different uh, indicators at a given point in time. So obviously this included um, subjective judgments on my part. And so I spent a lot of time um, considering uh, exactly when um, a change uh, could be said to have happened. So when 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 a, a shift in one or more of the indicate in the content in one or more of the indicators uh, was substantive enough to constitute a change, according to my framework. Um, so the framework differs, I would say, from um, 
many others' approaches to the study of the topic uh, of memories or narratives of, of um, past events or historical wrongs in a couple of respects. So one, which I sort of alluded to, is the fact that um, I look at the official narrative as a whole rather than just at, say, official statements or at school textbooks or at um, museums or memorials or commemorative events. So um, this is, this is um, I'm not the first person to look at um, official narratives in their whole, but this is distinct from a lot of other approaches. Um, a second thing is that um, I... Le, my definition of each of the elements in my conceptual framework is narrower and uh, than a lot of others' approaches. So um, studies that seek to identify change over time more commonly uh, identify uh, the content of a state's narrative or its overall position um, in either two or three characters. Um, categories. So for instance, as contrite or not contrite, um, whereas uh, I have these eight different possible elements. So by having more possible elements or more categories, really, I'm able to identify um, change at a more granular and nuanced level. Um, and I'm therefore also able to um, I, I identify then more points of change, uh, and I'm therefore able to, um, I have kind of more information to uh, come up with an assessment of what drives changes and what drives continuities over time. Okay, okay great. So that now, now that we've um, sort of been, we've been doing the, the big sort of meta issues about the analysis itself, um, I think that not all of our listeners are going to be familiar with the two incidents in question that are being narrated, these dark past themselves. Um, could you do us the, the favor of rehashing some of the core details of each of these incidents um, before we explore the ways that Japan and Turkey um, have changed their narratives over time. Um, and so that we can also talk about what the sort of push and pull factors are and uh, what's doing the instigating of the change in narrative and uh, what's sort of shaping that narrative. Good question. So the um, Armenian genocide uh, occurred in the context of World War I within the then Ottoman Empire. Um, and in specifically, it occurred between 1915 and 1917. And the Armenian Genocide um, involved the uh, forcible deportation and killing of the majority of Ottoman Armenian citizens of the Ottoman Empire. So Ottoman Armenians were a distinctive ethno-religious group within the overall population of the Ottoman Empire. And um, estimates of the number of Ottoman Armenians that were killed in the genocide ranged from about 800,000 to 1.5 million Ottoman Armenians. So really the vast majority of the um, overall Armenian population within the Ottoman Empire. And the genocide was orchestrated by um, the party, the central committee of the party that um, wa was in government in the Ottoman Empire. So it was orchestrated by key individuals within the government. Um, and it was executed with the involvement of um, the military um, the Ministry of the Interior, um, groups within Ottoman society, um, and um, yeah, the Nanjing massacre. So one key difference between the two cases, obviously, is that whereas the Armenian genocide was a genocide, the Nanjing massacre was not a genocide. It, it was a would be categorized as um, an event of mass killing. Um, so the Nanjing massacre occurred in um, 1937, and it occurred within the context of um, the Second Sino-Japanese War, which was fought between 
um, Imperial Japan and the Republic of China on the Chinese mainland. So the Second Sino-Japanese War unofficially began in 1931 and officially began in 1937, and it ended in 1945. Um, in my analysis, I study, um, I focus on the Nanjing Massacre, but I actually uh, analyze uh, official characterizations of both the Nanjing Massacre and the broader Second, broader Second Sino-Japanese War, because um, in for many of the indicators that I look at, um, Japanese officials and um, different uh, agencies in the Japanese government tend to, when asked questions about the Nanjing Massacre, um, to speak about the broader Second Sino-Japanese War. So they're really inextricably intertwined, and so I, I analyze them um, together, in a sense. Um, so in the broader Second Sino-Japanese War, um, millions of Chinese citizens were killed. There were uh, um, tens of thousands of Chinese women were raped in isolated incidents and also um, in the comfort women system of forced prostitution organized by the Japanese military. About 40,000 Chinese men were forced into slave labor. Um, and about 100,000 Chinese people were killed in the biological and chemical welfare uh, warfare programs um, organized by the Japanese military. Um, within the Nanjing Massacre itself, so the Nanjing Massacre um, began in December 1937 when the Japanese army invaded Nanking, um, which was then known as Nanjing, and it extended into early 1938. So during and after the capture of um, the city of Nanjing, um, which was then the capital of Chinese nationalist forces, um, Japanese soldiers burned much of the city. They killed an estimated 100 to 200,000 civilians and prisoners of war, and they raped an estimated 20,000 women. So those are synopses of the two events. Yeah, thank you very much. And I, it's, it's uh, <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> Where do you go from there? Right. Um, but I guess I guess I'd like to then um, sort of look at the the narratives and get a, a sort of get away from the events in that sense um, by looking at chapters two to four, uh, which deal in depth with the changing Turkish narrative. Um, chapter two, the, the Armenian genocide and its aftermath explores the period from the genocide uh, itself up to about 1950. Uh, then chapter three, from silencing to myth-making, 1950 to early, early 1990s. Uh, chapter four, playing hardball, 1994 to 2008, brings us all the way up uh, to just a decade ago. Um, so can you explain, uh, can you talk about the, the Turkish narrative uh, of the Armenian genocide during these three periods that you've delineated and explain some of the domestic and international factors in how that story changed or didn't? So... The period of analysis um, for both cases is um, from after World War II, after the end of World War II, to about to 2008. That's about when my, my research ended. So for Turkey's narrative, I started the analysis in 1950, which was um, the year of um, the first multi-party elections in Turkey. Um, and over the period from 1950 to 2008, I identified um, four phases or four periods of continuity separated by um, three uh, points of change. Um, and over this period of time, um, the change in Turkey's narrative is notable. So one can definitely see real substantive change in Turkey's narrative, but it's still nevertheless quite limited in terms of the kind of the scope of the change. Um, so in 1950, the overarching narrative was one um, was largely characterized by silence. Um, so between 1950 and 1980, um, almost nothing was said about the Armenian genocide or as it 
was known or is still usually referred to um, as the quote unquote Armenian question uh, within Turkey. So there was there was there was a blanket of silence within Turkey. Um, textbooks said nothing about about the issue, and they they said nothing even about Armenians' existence in the Ottoman Empire. So so a Turkish um, student wouldn't know who Armenians were. They wouldn't know that Armenians constituted one of the Christian minority groups within the Ottoman Empire um, in this period between 1950 and 1980. Um, uh, Turkish officials said nothing. Um, textbooks, uh, books from outside the country um, were censored so that no books that referred to the genocide were um, allowed to come into the country and be sold within the country. Um, and externally, Turkish officials uh, only referred to the issue when they absolutely had to, when it came up um, in uh, in the context, in, in relations with other countries or when it came up in other countries. And in those contexts, Turkish officials um, typically um, said that this was an unfortunate part of the past and it should be, um, it should not be opened up because that was only going to be um, that was only going to inflame relations and be bad. So they basically argued that it should be kind of swept under the carpet and that that was better for everybody. Um, the silence during this period was really perpetuated uh, by um, Turkey's geostrategic position in the Cold War and then also by constraints on domestic freedoms and the oppression of minorities domestically. Um, the change, so the, the state's narrative first changed in 1981, um, and the, the substantive change that, that arose in 1981 was a shift from purely denying and silencing this past to um, also coming to myth-make about and relativize this past. So to basically, Turkish officials started to, they crafted an alternative story about what had happened um, during World War I to Ottoman Armenians. Um, and they started to disseminate that domestically and internationally. The factors that triggered or brought about this change were um, international pressures, in particular, um, the emergence of um, two uh, Armenian terrorist organizations uh, in the mid-1970s that um, targeted, in particular, Turkish diplomats. Um, and they did this in order to bring attention to um, Turkey's silencing and denial of the Armenian genocide and to, to call for recognition of the genocide. Um, the other factor internationally was the beginning of um, international uh, recognition or the, the bringing of international attention to the issue. And this, um, this was most notable um, in the UN, the issue came up. Um, and uh, in the mid nineteen, in the early nineteen seventies, really, and persisted throughout the nineteen seventies in a debate over whether whether um, a reference to the Armenian genocide should be included in a UN report, um, and also um, the beginning of um, attempts to pass resolutions in the U.S. Congress to recognize the Armenian genocide. So all this started in the nineteen seventies, um, and Turkish officials, uh, particularly Turkish diplomats. They uh, were repeatedly asked about this issue um, because Turkish diplomats were being assassinated um, and it was coming up in the UN and it was coming up in the United States. Um, and Turkish, uh, Turkish diplomats didn't have um, very good answers to uh, what, for instance, these terrorists were talking about. Um, they, didn't, they didn't have a, a well-crafted story from the perspective of, um, that would, that would articulate the Turkish state's position on this issue. Um, and yet change didn't actually happen until 1981. Um, so, so all these factors are really began to arise in the early seventies, but change didn't happen until the early 1980s. And the timing of the change was shaped by domestic factors within Turkey, in particular, the fact that there was a, um, a military coup in, um, in, uh, late 1980. Um, and so after the coup, uh, Turkish diplomats, um, together with the Turkish military um, and other branches of the government, uh, coordinated 
uh, and work together to craft a new narrative that would kind of articulate the state's position about the issue that they could then disseminate externally and also disseminate domestically. Um, and so then the reworked narrative um, that emerged in the early 1980s claimed that the charge of genocide was baseless, that claims of genocide were based on false propaganda by Armenians, that actually Armenians had been well-treated under Ottoman rule and they'd only constituted a minority of the population, uh, that Armenians had collaborated with the Ottoman Empire's enemies uh, and that they'd rebelled during World War I, um, and that finally Armenians had actually committed massacres and atrocities against Ottoman Turkish citizens. Um, this was disseminated, um, this new narrative was disseminated in um, Turkish high school history textbooks, uh, in um, official publications that were published by um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and by um, uh, other kind of uh, quasi-official institutions, um, and in official statements that were made domestically and that were made um, externally, so to international audiences. Um, so the narrative, uh, this narrative, uh, this reworked narrative that that was largely one of um, myth making and relativizing alongside um, denial, continued denial, um, really continued for about two decades. So there was a there was a there were subtle changes that arose after the end of the Cold War and the emergence of the state of Armenia, which I identify as a, a new phase. But the elements of the narrative didn't actually change, but rather the the tone and the argumentation changed um, in the latter part of the 1990s. Um, then the most then the the the, the third point of change that I identify came in 2001. Um, and in um, 2001, um, again, the change arose in response to international pressures, and in particular in response to a wave of states recognizing, um, or in a few cases attempting to recognize legislatively, or in a couple of cases executively, the Armenian genocide. Um, and the kind of straws that broke the camel's back were um, a resolution that was considered in the U.S. Congress and almost passed um, that would have recognized the Armenian genocide and um, France's official recognition of the Armenian genocide. And so following these two final um, recognitions, um, Turkish officials, uh, again in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, and the, um, in particular, the military um, and the National Security Council, which was kind of the, the, the peak organization in the military that, that had a large executive role in Turkish politics at the time, um, they together uh, again worked to coordinate the reworking of the narrative and the dissemination of the reworked narrative um, domestically and internationally. And so um, the narrative is, as it was reworked um, after, from 2001, um, was the changes weren't as stark as the changes were in 1980. Um, but one, the most notable change was that the, the official narrative uh, could really no longer avoid uh, acknowledging that, um, that large numbers of Ottoman Armenians had died at the time. So um, that came to be acknowledged. Um, but alongside this um, acknowledgement of the, base, the basic fact of um, large numbers of deaths uh, was um, a, a reworked efforts to relativize um, and downplay and myth-make about um, these deaths. Um, and so, um, in particular, uh, greater emphasis was placed on the fact that these deaths occurred in the context of what the Turkish state's narrative refers to as civil war or mutual massacre between Armenians and Turks. And the narrative even came to argue that, um, that Armenians had committed a genocide against um, Muslims at the time rather than the other way around. Um, and uh, one thing that I found really interesting about the change in the narrative at the time was that, um, was that the narrative also adopted pretty clearly adopted language of um, truth-seeking uh, and um, truth-telling that, that scholars have referred to as uh, 
stemming from the memory wave or the age of apology that has arisen over the past several decades. And so in a reflection of that, of the, that, the shifting in international expectations, Turkish officials in the mid-2000s started to argue that um, Turkey was ready to face the past um, and that, in fact, Armenia was the one that was resistant to facing the past and that facing the past and coming to terms with the past would be better for everybody. Um, and as in the earlier period, uh, this reworked narrative was disseminated um, in textbooks, um, in international communications, in um, publications uh, published by various agencies of the Turkish government and by organizations affiliated with the Turkish government, um, and was coordinated um, by a committee that was established that was co-headed by the foreign minister and the head of the National Security Council. And so, so we have really three points of change, two significant points of change um, over the 58-year period of the analysis, uh, and a shift from uh, silencing and denial to um, myth-making and relativizing and very limited acknowledgement of deaths, but not the nature of the deaths or responsibility for the deaths. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So you uh, contrast that with the Japanese narrative, which you take up in the remaining chapters of the book, chapters five to seven. Um, in chapter five, the Nanjing Massacre and the Second Sino-Japanese War, uh, you begin with the massacre itself and you cover the period through the end of the American occupation in 1952. And then in chapter six, History's Issues in the Post-War Period, 1952 to 1989, you take us up to the end of the Cold War, also the year of the death of the, the Showa Emperor. Um, and then in chapter seven, uh, unfreezing the question of history, 1990 to 2008, um, as you did with Turkey, you bring us up to 2008. Um, can you give us the sort of contours, the outline of the Japanese uh, official story during that those periods um, and how and why it did change um, and what divergences you see from the way that the Turkish narrative evolved? Yes. Um, so one slight difference between the two cases is that my analysis of Japan's narrative started in 1952 rather than in 1950. And this was because... Um, the uh, U.S. occupation of Japan ended in 1952, so it didn't make sense to analyze the state's narrative when the state wasn't a sovereign state. So my analysis of Japan's narrative uh, began in 1952 and extends to 2008, which is roughly when my research ended. Um, and over this period of 56 years, I identify um, six phases, so six periods of continuity, and five points of change. Um, so I identify um, more um, discrete changes in Japan's narrative than in Turkey's narrative. Um, moreover, uh, the change in Japan's narrative, uh, the scope of the change in Japan's narrative is greater than the scope of the change in Turkey's narrative. So um, in the period, in the first phase that I identify in, in Japan's narrative, which is from 1952 to 1971, uh, the, the narrative uh, was largely one of denial uh, or silencing, myth-making, and relativizing. So that's a... that. That's kind of a starting point that's very similar to Turkey's, although there was much more that was said. So Turkey's was largely one of, of, of a blanket of silence, whereas Japan's narrative um, involved uh, much more myth-making and relativizing alongside silences. Um, and the last phase that I identify, um, so from um, the death of the Shah emperor th um, through, um, sorry, no, not then, um, from 1998 through... Um, 2008, um, so the, basically a decade, um, that narrative uh, range included 
a number of elements. And so this kind of illustrates how the conceptual framework um, allows one to capture um, really divergent threads within an overall narrative. And so it included both myth-making and relativizing, um, but also acknowledging, acknowledging harm, expressing regret, admitting responsibility, and apologizing. Um, so across the various indicators of Japan's narrative, um, uh, these five elements in the conceptual framework were all represented. Um, and so this is, this is a much greater degree of change in Japan's narrative than in Turkey's narrative. Um, and um, one significant, there, there are a number of, I would say, um, factors that account for the diverging trajectory of the two narratives and the greater degree of change in um, Japan's narrative compared to Turkey's narrative. So one factor is um, stems from international pressures. So the, the 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 argument that I make in my book, kind of the the high level argument, is that um, international pressures um, are more likely to trigger change, but domestic considerations shape the content of that change. Um, and so in Japan's, uh, in the case of Japan compared to the case of Turkey, um, there were there were, there were there was a much greater degree of international pressures on. Um, Japan about its representation of both the Nanjing Massacre and the Second Sino-Japanese War compared to on Turkey. Um, so one, the, the representative quote-unquote victim state um, in, for um, the Japanese case or for Japan is China, um, whereas for Turkey it's Armenia. Um, and uh, over the period of analysis, uh, China's power uh, grew uh, notably, as we know. Um, and uh, China today, but really for the entire period of analysis, was relatively speaking more powerful than um, Armenia was relative to Turkey. Another difference is that um, for much of the period of analysis, uh, Turkey and um, actually for the entire period of analysis, Turkey and Armenia um, had no formal diplomatic relations, and that continues today. In contrast, um, Japan and China normalized relations in 1971. So for much of the period of analysis, or for at least the latter four decades of the period of analysis, um, uh, Japan and China had diplomatic relations. Um, so that allowed um, Turkey was much, much, it, it was much easier for Turkey to disregard or dismiss um, any statements um, or attempts at um, calls for recognition coming from Armenia, um, whereas that was more difficult in Turkey, in Japan's relations with China. Um, another difference in terms of international pressures is that, um, is that Japan has really faced a constellation of victim states. Um, so while China is the primary victim state on the issue of the Second Sino-Japanese War. Taiwan is also, um, and then um, South Korea and um, other uh, Asian countries have all, um, at points of time, called on Japan to change how it represents um, various aspects of um, either the Second Sino-Japanese War or um, policies within the broader um, Asia-Pacific War um, or characterizations of the overarching war. Um, and so this broader constellation or, or enlarged set of victim states um, has um, increased the pressures on Japan um, at points of time. So um, one of the reasons why then there's a kind of greater, greater degree of change in Japan's narrative compared to Turkey's narrative um, is because of um, the greater power of the relevant victim state, the normal, 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 the diplomatic relations that existed between the two states, um, and the larger number of victim states. Um, domestically, there's several factors that um, that also differ between the two cases, and that account for the much greater degree of change in Japan's narrative compared to um, to Turkey's narrative. Um, so. One factor I emphasize is that um, concerns about um, the possibility of demands for compensation or territory 
shape officials' willingness to consider making change or changing their narrative. Um, and so the greater, I argue that the greater the extent to which officials um, fear or are concerned that they might face calls for compensation or territory, um, the less willing they are to change their narrative in the direction of greater acknowledgement and greater contrition. And so uh, both um, Turkish officials and Japanese officials have um, had what I refer to as material concerns that have um, accounted for some of their resistance to change, but uh, change in the direction of greater acknowledgement and greater contrition. Uh, but um, I argue that Turkish officials' uh, concerns about demands for compensation and territory uh, were greater than Japan's concerns. Um, which is not to say that Japan didn't also have similar concerns. So one source of the difference is that in terms of um, concerns about compensation claims, um, Japanese officials have been able to rely on legal defenses that Turkish officials haven't had. Um, so both Taiwan, Taiwan and China gave up their rights to claim compensation in 1951 and 1972, respectively. Um, and um, while it's not clear in these respective treaties that the giving up of um, compensation claims also included the issue of individual compensation. Japanese officials have consistently argued that it does refer to also individual compensation claims. And so Japanese officials have consistently argued that the question of compensation is has been settled. Um, and while Japanese officials have still been concerned about individual compensation claims and the potential that, um, that it's not settled in everybody's eyes, um, they've at least had an argument that they could make and they've had legal documents that they could refer to that bolster that argument. Turkey, Turkey hasn't had a similar legal defense that it's been able to marshal. And so um, concerns about potential compensation claims um, have been greater and more dominant in Turkish officials' um, perceptions. Uh, in addition, um, both Turkey and Japan have territorial concerns that are part of uh, their reservations or uh, resistance to uh, greater acknowledgement and contrition um, and have been the case over time. But um, in Turkey, um, the territories that, that have been in question are central parts of Turkish territory and involve um, very valuable um, properties, including um, the former um, president's uh, estate, uh, which used to be owned by a wealthy uh, Ottoman Armenian, um, and um, Injerlik Air Base, which is the air base from which um, the United States waged a lot of its, uh, it was very useful in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Um, that territory also used to be owned um, by Ottoman Armenians. Um, and so Turkish officials have long been concerned about the potential for um, large-scale territorial claims, but also for the potential for um, a, a, a host of individual claims um, for uh, territories and properties to be returned or, or to be or compensation on, on the basis of those. In contrast, um, the territories in question for Japan are not part of Japan's main islands. So while um, the, the um, contested um, territories uh, with China, with the Republic of Korea, and with Russia um, have uh, been uh, serious issues in, in bilateral relations, um, and while there are potentially um, large economic rents to be gained from um, the territories that are disputed, um, these aren't part of the main islands. So, so, so symbolically and ideationally, um, I argue that they're not as central um, and therefore um, not as significant of a concern as, as, as these concerns have been for Turkish officials. Um, I also identify um, legitimacy, legitimacy and identity concerns as um, an element that accounts for, um, that shapes officials' willingness to consider um, changing their narrative. And I argue that, um, that the greater the extent to which 
Um, the state's narrative connects with sources of legitimacy and identity for the state, its institutions, and its officials, um, the less likely officials are to be willing to consider changing the narrative in the direction of acknowledgement, greater acknowledgement and contrition. And so um, while for both Turkey and Japan, um, these events have connected with um, conceptions of each state's identity, uh, they again have the Armenian genocide connects much more centrally with um, the official representation of Turkish national identity and with the state's narrative of the founding of the Turkish state. Um, in addition, another kind of ideational difference between the two is that um, while in Japanese politics, um, the issue of um, history issues, broadly speaking, and um, representations of the Second Sino-Japanese War, the Pacific War, um, and the Nanjing Massacre, they've fallen really along the fault line between um, uh, liberals and conservatives within Japanese politics. Um, so um, at, at, so for, for, for these two kind of different groups on the political spectrum, the issue has been used in different, been understood in different ways to say something about Japanese national identity. In contrast, in Turkey, the issue of the Armenian genocide really lies, um, it has been constructed as lying on the fault line between uh, domestic politics and international politics. Um, so that, um, so that the Armenian genocide is represented as, um, as, as, an, as, um, uh, something against which ordinary Turks um, need to uh, defend the nation. Um, and as another example of the many instances in Turkish history in which um, uh, actors outside of Turkey sought to undermine its unity uh, and its uh, sovereignty. Um, and so ideationally, this has made the stakes of change for the Armenian genocide higher than the stakes of change overall um, for the Nanjing massacre for, for Japan. Um, the other source of difference in the trajectory of the two narratives has been the extent and direction of domestic contestation over these issues. So in Japan, there's been um, a much uh, longer standing and more extensive pattern of contestation um, of um, history issues, broadly speaking, of the representation of the war and the Nanjing massacre more specifically. Um, so one can trace domestic contestation over, um, over history issues all the way back to the early 1950s. Um, whereas in Turkey, um, domestic contestation has been much more limited um, and there have been more formal constraints. So in Japan, the constraints over um, discussion of these issues and contestation of, of history issues um, have been largely informal. So um, social, uh, deriving from social pressures and deriving from the highly vocal um, and intimidating right-wing nationalist fringe. Uh, whereas in Turkey, um, there have actually been formal constraints on... Um, that have limited individuals' uh, ability and willingness to speak about these issues um, because they risked um, being uh, arrested and charged with insulting the memory of Ataturk, um, insulting the state, etc. Um, so over time then, there's been, broadly speaking, um, a higher degree of international pressure on Japanese officials to change their narrative a higher degree of domestic contestation in Japan over these issues, and um, relatively speaking, lower levels of, of constraints de deriving from domestic, domestic considerations um, on Japanese officials versus on Turkish officials. Um, and all this accounts for um, the greater degree of change over time in Japan's narrative compared to Turkey's narrative. Um, the one other thing, I, I would just add one other thing, which is that because of the relatively speaking lower levels of resistance um, uh, uh, deriving from lower 
values on these different domestic considerations that I identify. Um, the changes in Japan's narrative have been um, somewhat more disaggregated and spread over time than has been the case in Turkey's narrative. So because Turkish officials have perceived the stakes, the material stakes and the ideational stakes to be um, existentially threatening um, to a really extreme degree, they've been extremely resistant to um, acknowledging um, acknowledging um, the extent of harm and certainly to acknowledging the nature of the harms or responsibility. Um, and so they've been very resistant to change. And when change has happened, it's been really extensive and thoroughgoing. Um, so kind of across all the indicators that I looked at, in contrast, in Japan's narrative, um, changes have been somewhat more disaggregated so that um, that at some points of time there were changes um, in the content, in, in how the Nanjing massacre was represented in textbooks, um, but um, not changes, say, in official uh, statements. Um, and then at other points in time, there were changes in official statements or in commemorative activities, but not in other indicators. Um, and this, I argue, is a reflection of the um, relatively speaking lower stakes for Japanese officials so that um, change is um, thought of in somewhat more pragmatic and less um, extreme existential terms um, for Japanese officials compared to Turkish officials. Yeah, thank you for uh, giving us a, a really uh, detailed comparison of the the ways that the two narratives have changed. I wonder if, um, sort of, by way of of wrapping up here, you could uh, talk a little bit about um, what, if any, sort of broader implications or lessons could be learned um, for uh, uh, considering other uh, similar instances where states are uh, grappling with uh, dark pasts, uh, be they sort of human rights atrocities or other kinds of historical issues? Great. Um, so there's, I would say there are uh, four key insights that I would take away, that I take away from my analysis about more broadly speaking, the politics of memory in relation to dark pasts. So um, one is that, is that I find that um, states' narratives, there's no simple formula for uh, when and why states change their narratives. Like you can't say, if this, then this. Um, rather, I find that um, changes in states' narratives arise from um, highly interactive and contingent processes. Um, so um, the, the, I emphasize both the interaction between um, considerations at the international level and considerations at the domestic level um, as being really essential to understanding um, the changes that do arise at any given point in time. Um, so I, I find first and foremost, right, that there's no simple um, you know, if if one pressures a state in this way, then you will get change in this way, right? That's that's just not realistic, and I'm sure you would find that to be obvious, given that you're a historian, right? Um, the second finding is about the nature of change in states' narratives. Um, so I find that uh, one, states' narratives are prone toward continuity and insert inertia. Two, that when change does occur. It's typically incremental, and it often involves layering, whereby new themes are added on to existing ones. So in both cases, um, the language of the state's narrative um, changes in very incremental and layered ways, right? So it's rare that um, an argument or theme from the narrative is completely discarded and a radically different one emerges. Rather, what's much more common is for new themes to be layered on top of uh, existing ones or for a subtle change to be made in an argument or aspect of the state's narrative. And the third insight I find about the, or derive about the nature of change is that change is often multifaceted and sometimes ambivalent. So um, as I mentioned, the last phase that I identify in Japan's narrative includes both myth-making myth and relativizing and apologizing, right? So that that uh, range in the narrative at one point in time really uh, underscores 
um, the sometimes very ambivalent nature of a state's narrative at a single point in time. Um, similarly, Turkey's narrative in the last phase of, of, of my analysis is similarly ambivalent, right? So that, that after 2001, the state's narrative came to acknowledge, um, started to acknowledge um, that uh, a few hundred thousand Ottoman Armenians had died, um, but also began to um, make new arguments uh, that relativized these deaths uh, that presented an alternative narrative of these deaths um, and that sought to downplay um, the, the importance of these deaths. Um, so, so both narratives indicate um, the multifaceted nature of change and the sometimes ambivalent nature of change in states' narratives. Um, another, I would say, contribution is the, is the conceptual framework that I developed for the book, which, which my hope is that um, others might find it useful for analyzing other states' narratives, either over time or in comparison. Um, and then finally, one thing that I didn't, haven't said that much about in the interview with you today, um, but that is one of the strands in the book, is that I talk about um, international norms and the ways in which the, the, the complexities of their impact um, and the range of responses to normative expectations. Um, and in particular, in the book, I, um, I pay attention to um, uh, changing expectations related to truth-seeking and truth-telling in relation to both countries. Um, and then in relation to Turkey's narrative in particular, um, the changing um, strength of the norm against genocide and kind of changing understandings, both from a scholarly perspective and from a legal perspective of genocide and how those have factored into the ways in which Turkish officials have sought to um, reframe uh, the nature of the event. Um, so all of these insights, I, I, I think and hope uh, others would find applicable to other cases. Great. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for spending some time with us today uh, to talk about your book. And I'm looking forward to uh, hearing from you again when something new comes out. Thank you again for um, inviting me to do this interview and for um, the great questions. Uh, I really appreciate it. All right. Take care.